Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Rachel Lippman. Tom Countryman is the former Assistant Secretary for International Security and Nonproliferation, and he left the State Department in 2017 as Acting Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security. He is a graduate of Washington University, majoring in economics and political science, and Countryman is back in St. Louis today for a 7 p.m. forum titled Diplomacy, Security, Treaties, and Peace. Tom Countryman, welcome to the program. Thank you, Rachel. Happy to be here. Um, We're glad to have you. And those were some very broad, uh, intimidating titles, (laughs) Assistant Secretary, Acting Undersecretary. Tell us a little bit about some of the positions that you held through a long career in the State Department. I was very proud to serve the United States for 35 years as a Foreign Service officer in the Department of State. I spent nearly half of that time assigned to embassies overseas, particularly in the Middle East and in Southeast Europe, doing a variety of tasks, but in general, doing the work that Foreign Service officers do from one administration to the next, which is serving the president's foreign policy priorities, protecting Americans overseas, advancing our political and our economic interests, making the world a safer place for the United States and for its citizens. And so were you specifically interested in sort of in in the nonproliferation and arms control arena, or was that a position that you got put into as a career diplomat? For most of my career, that was not my specialty. For the last seven years of my career, there a very strong focus on nuclear weapons, not just on the U.S. nuclear weapons policy, but uh, importantly on preventing the spread of nuclear or chemical or biological weapons to more countries around the world. You were one of several top career diplomats um, who were ousted or departed after President Trump took office. Uh, listeners to St. Louis Public Radio, to National Public Radio, re- may remember your interview with, with Stephen Skeep on Morning Edition. What was your reaction to what looked maybe to the outside kind of like a, a you know fire sale, a Saturday Night Massacre, if you would? Well, I wouldn't over-dramatize it. It certainly was unprecedented for a new administration to let go career officials who had served through successive Republican and Democratic administrations long before there was any nominee to replace them in those important positions. It was not bad for me. I'm happy to be retired and to to pursue other interests connected to it. What concerns me far more is the message of disrespect that the White House chose to send in its first week and has chosen to reinforce repeatedly over the last two years a message of disrespect and disdain for loyal Americans who have sacrificed a lot in order to serve the United States in a very difficult profession. And that uh, pattern of uh, disrespect, uh, of distrust towards the Foreign Service, towards the Department of State, and more generally towards federal workers in all agencies is not serving the U.S. public well. That's what concerns me more. Help our listeners understand a little bit the distinction here I, there is between the, the figures we hear about, the ambassadors, the secretary, and what you're referring to as the, as the career diplomats who maybe have a little bit more job security through these administrations. Um, sure. Uh, it, it's not so much about job security as it is the fact that all of us in the Foreign Service took an oath at the beginning to defend the Constitution of the United States 
and agreed to serve loyally every president. And I served four Republican presidents and three Democratic presidents and helped them to implement foreign policy, obviously at a low level at the beginning and at a higher level later in my career. And it is very clear and made clear to us from the start that if you are unable because of a personal or ethical disagreement to implement the orders you're given, the policy directives, then it's your duty to resign. A number of our best diplomats have done that over the last two years because of their strong disagreement with the radical direction in foreign policy that the Trump administration has taken. But I have the highest respect for those not only in the Department of State but in all federal agencies who are sticking to it, who continue to believe that the job of the Environmental Protection Agency is to protect the environment, that the job of the Consumer Protection Bureau is to protect consumers. Uh, people who are dedicated to public service, I think, will get through a time when we have a president who is disdainful of people who have devoted their lives to public service. And I understand that you actually found out that you no longer had the position with the State Department as you were heading out to Rome on State Department business. What was that experience <laughs> like? You were in the air, I believe? I wasn't quite in the air. I was at the United States Embassy in Amman, Jordan, preparing for an important meeting that evening uh, with a number of Arab League officials. And I was scheduled to go the next day to a meeting with seven allied countries specifically on nonproliferation issues. Uh, so yes, it was certainly surprising and I had the choice at that moment uh, to uh, continue at the State Department. The president could not fire me from federal employment, but he could. It was within his right to relieve me of the Senate-confirmed position I had. I chose to retire the following week so that I could be free. Uh, but as I left, I made a very strong statement to all my colleagues that I hoped that they would persist uh, and stay, continue to serve the public, do their best to serve the new president and his priorities. Uh, and I have the highest respect for those who are continuing to do that. Do you think that if you had been in one of a, a non-Senate confirmation position, um, you know, like a, a lower level civil service, you mentioned that they are allowed to resign if they do not agree with the policies. Do you think you would have been an individual who resigned? That's a hard question and I haven't really asked myself that. I had an advantage over many others in that after 35 years, I was eligible for a pension, not a huge pension, but sufficient for me to live in. So I had a luxury that other people who still had mortgages, children in college, didn't yet have a pension, uh, perhaps a luxury that they didn't have. Uh, I believe that public service and the millions of Americans who choose public service over more enriching, more lucrative professions uh, are really the backbone uh, of the United States government and are more crucial to its success than the elected officials who go in and out. 
If you have a question for Tom Countryman about diplomacy, arms control, or other foreign policy topics, you can give us a call at 314-382-TALK. That's 382-8255. You can send us an email at talk at stlpublicradio.org or tweet tweet us at stlonair. Um, So President Trump will be meeting with South Korean President Moon Jae-in today. Um, One of the topics is expected to be North Korea's nuclear program. These whole series of meetings between the Korean leaders, the president and the Korean leaders, has anything significant actually changed when it comes to North Korea's nuclear program here? The North Korean issue is one of the few places where I will give the president credit for trying something new and different in diplomacy. He's not correct when he says that diplomacy with North Korea has never gotten anywhere. In fact, for several years, diplomacy with North Korea under both Democrats and Republicans delayed significantly North Korea's nuclear weapons program. But the president is correct when he says that we have never reached the goal of removing the threat from North Korea through our traditional diplomacy. So I respect him for trying something new and risky, that is engagement at the level of leader to leader. What concerns me now is that the president is unwilling to trust the people he has appointed to do the actual negotiations. The North Koreans have learned from the president's own statement and behavior that he's the only person worth talking to. And as a result, it has not been possible to make progress, uh, incremental step-by-step, action-for-action progress at a lower level because the North Koreans don't want to engage with the very competent people that the president has appointed to do that job. Now, the South Korean president, uh, President Moon, has played a very important role in trying to bridge gaps between the U.S. and North Korea, in trying to get to both sides to recognize you cannot make a single giant agreement instantly that solves all problems. You've got to be able to each side to take one step at a time. And how out of the norm is it to jump to a summit between two leaders on something like this? It is uh, completely out of the norm. Uh, Usually in history, a summit, whether it's between an American and a Soviet leader or American and Chinese leaders, is very carefully prepared by the teams of diplomats, by the White House team, so that you know the result and there are no real surprises at such a summit. Uh, I Again, I, I give some respect to the president for trying something different, uh, but it is not a pattern, I think, that should be repeated. Nothing happens, nothing happens, and then boom, we have another summit uh, without the kind of careful preparation that would actually lead to success in this case. And how realistic is this idea that North Korea is going to give up its weapons program? Um, are, are they you know, shooting for something that is ultimately unattainable? What's the best case scenario here? In the short term, it is not attainable to get North Korea to give up its entire nuclear weapons program. In the longer term, the initial statement that the president and the North Korean leader negotiated in Singapore last year has some positive elements. If you could get to a situation where the state of hostility between the two countries is resolved, where there is the beginning of a normal relationship, 
you can also get North Korea to take some very important steps to stop any further progress on its weapons, ultimately to put some kind of controls on those weapons, and then very ultimately, that is over a period of many years, convince North Korea to end its nuclear weapons program. But that's a long-term prospect that you get to step by step, not in one giant bite. We need to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll have more with Tom Countryman and take your questions on foreign policy, nuclear treaties, and diplomacy. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back to St. Louis on the Air, where my guest is Tom Countryman. He is the former Assistant Secretary for International Security and Nonproliferation and a graduate of Washington University. And we want to take a call from Tom from South St. Louis. Tom, you are on the air with Mr. Countryman. What's your question for him? Thank you. Uh, President uh, George W. Bush famously described himself as the decider, and I'm wondering... uh, with so much of the expertise in government having been jettisoned by the Trump administration um, in the decisions they make, what kind of foreign policy disaster scenario is maybe most frightening or um, most likely right now, you know, that, that you're most concerned about? Tom, thank you for the question. Tom, your answer. <laughs> well, that's a, that is a great question. Uh, First, looking backwards, I think that President Bush's decision in 2003 to invade Iraq is the greatest foreign policy disaster uh, uh, the U.S. has made in my lifetime. Uh, And we could talk about that some more. But to get right to your question, there's two specific things I'm most worried about tonight. And I'll be talking about some of these things in a talk I'm giving tonight at uh, the First Unitarian Church in the Central West End. Um, The first is my fear that we are headed for a military conflict with Iran. Uh, The president has adopted a policy of maximum pressure and maximum demands on the Iranian government and has avoided any kind of meaningful diplomatic engagement. Now, I don't like a hundred different things that the Iranian regime does, but it's not a sign of weakness to talk to them about it and to try to knock down these issues one by one as President Obama did with the Iranian nuclear program. What I fear instead is that uh, the president and particularly his national security advisor are hoping to provoke Iran into a military conflict where the U.S. can use some degree of military force against Iran. That's a completely unnecessary conflict, uh, but it's one I worry about. The bigger thing I worry about, even though it is uh, less likely – it is likely enough to be very scary, and that is the possibility of conflict with the Russian Federation. The field that I've worked in for the last several years and continue to work in is nuclear arms control. We are in a situation where one of the key treaties signed by President Reagan and President Gorbachev in 1987 is being abandoned by both the United States and the Russian side. And an even more important treaty, the New START treaty that limits the number of nuclear weapons both sides have to the lowest level we've seen in 60 years, this treaty will expire less than two years from now. 
and there is no apparent interest in the Trump administration in renewing the treaty. If you put those facts together, the loss of any control on the two nuclear arsenals for the first time since 1972, the absence of any diplomatic dialogue about how to minimize the risk of conflict, and the absence of military-to-military dialogue about how to prevent an accidental war and an accidental escalation, these concern me. So let me just cite one thing. It's not just my opinion. If you pick up today's Wall Street Journal, you'll see an excellent editorial by both uh, three prominent Democrats and Republicans, George Shultz, Bill Perry, Sam Nunn, uh, that express exactly this concern, that by failing to address this issue, we are steadily increasing the risk of an accidental and devastating nuclear conflict. Tom, thank you for that question. Uh, Tom Countryman, I'm wondering if you could kind of give us a picture first. You mentioned this New START treaty and this other one, uh, the, Inter- the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, I believe it's called, uh, just in kind of a, you know the, the Reader's Digest version of mm-hmm. what, what this framework that exists now is and and kind of the timeline for these two elapsed. The, what does the INF control, this new start? What's it meant to control? Well, just a quick historical note, which is that every president since John Kennedy to Barack Obama saw arms control discussions and agreements with the Soviets and later with the Russians as a national security measure, as a means to reduce the risk that the United States could be destroyed in a nuclear war. Uh, And so in particular, President Reagan and President Gorbachev took very courageous steps in diffusing a moment of high tension between the Soviet Union and NATO in the mid-1980s when both sides were pointing these short-range, intermediate-range missiles that could destroy each other's capitals within 10 minutes. Um, The more important treaty is the New START Treaty negotiated by President Obama in 2010 and ratified by the U.S. Senate. It uh, limits each side to the deployment of 1,550 nuclear warheads. And And is this across all delivery mechanisms? This is, uh, yes, and it's specifically strategic nuclear warheads. That is the bigger bombs that are city-destroying. Both sides still have way too many tactical nuclear warheads, that is, uh, nuclear weapons of a smaller but still devastating size. Um, the When you look at the history of the United States having 30,000 nuclear weapons in the early 70s, the Soviets having even more, the fact that we've cut down both arsenals to this level and the fact that we have unprecedented transparency with each other. We tell each other where these weapons are. We notify each other when they are moved. We have greater predictability and greater stability. If this treaty goes away in two years, both the United States and the Russian Federation, I believe, are likely to resume a very dangerous and a very expensive nuclear arms race as we did throughout the 1960s. And and what leads you to the conclusion that even though the landscape is very different, these are not countries that are, you know, sworn ideological enemies anymore, why do you think there would be this this lapse of 
is it just simply because it doesn't exist officially anymore and it gives them the freedom then to do this? Um, well, first, I'm worried about it because on the United States side, the national security advisor, Mr. Bolton, has always been an opponent of this treaty uh, since it was first negotiated. Uh, there is no arms control treaty that he has ever liked. Uh, the president seems hostile to this treaty because it was negotiated by President Obama, and there seems to be a psychological antipathy to anything that President Obama did. So even though the Russians, I think, are behaving more rationally and seeing that the continuation of an imperfect treaty is better than having no control at all, I don't have confidence that the U.S. will uh, proceed to renew the treaty. We get into an arms race then because, uh, as I said right now, we notify each other. We know exactly what the Russians have. They know exactly what we have. Uh, they know that we are tied in a situation of mutual vulnerability. Both sides recognize that nobody could win a nuclear exchange. If you get to a situation where you don't know what the other side has because there's no longer these reporting and inspection requirements, then you do what military people would call worst-case planning. You have to assume that they have more weapons than they actually have, and therefore you start building up your weapons. If you want to hear more about diplomacy, securities, treaties, and peace, Tom Countryman will be the keynote speaker at an event tonight. That's April 11th at 7 p.m. at the First Unitarian Church. That's on Waterman Boulevard, I believe, right there at King's Highway. I want to take another call. Fred from Glendale has a question about the politics of appointments to the embassies. Fred, go ahead. Yes. Uh, hi. Uh, I know all presidents do this. And I, uh, political appointments, and I'm wondering how your guest feels about political appointments to ambassadorships uh, to embassies overseas, when I believe that uh, trained professional diplomats would much better serve the interests of our country, no matter how small or how important are the country uh, uh, that the embassies are located. Fred, thank you for that question. And, and Tom, I understand that this that is actually something that is unique to the United States. We're one of, I think, the f a few countries that has these as sort of political appointee roles rather than career bureaucrats, as em uh, career diplomats, as, as embassy. Uh, oh, my goodness, I'm yeah. having a blank here. Uh, 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 ambassadors. Ambassadors, yes. Yeah. Um, you're correct that the United States is the only country that widely uses that practice. Some countries do it on an exceptional basis. Uh, yes, career diplomats in general uh, want to see the most qualified people appointed as ambassadors to represent the U.S. overseas, to manage big operations, to improve relations with friendly countries. Uh, the uh, And in general, foreign service officers with years of experience are the best people to do that. However, I've worked for a couple of politically appointed ambassadors under both Democratic and Republican administrations who not only were excellent leaders, very good diplomats, but they had something that I can't match, which is a personal relationship with the president. And that matters in a lot of countries, uh, not just our best allies. 
the most concerning thing is when any president puts forward people who have no qualifications whatsoever as a manager, as a leader, or as a diplomat, but simply as a political reward. And that practice uh, has been of concern in every administration for the last 50 years and is a matter of even higher concern under the current administration. In the time we have left, Tom, I wanted to touch very briefly on one thing. You were discussing a lot about the framework around nuclear arms control. I'm wondering what the framework is right now for other weapons of mass destruction and their components and where some of the biggest gaps are in that structure. Well, there are very strong treaties that nearly every country in the world has signed that outlaw completely chemical weapons and biological weapons. The uh, chemical weapons use is of great concern because the Syrian government in the civil war that it's fighting against its own people for the last seven years has repeatedly used both simple chemical weapons such as chlorine and advanced nerve agents against its own people. Uh, One of the things that I had the opportunity to help lead in the Obama administration was the uh, agreement in cooperation with Russia to remove 1,300 tons of advanced chemical weapons and their precursors out of Syria and to destroy those. We obviously did not succeed in eliminating 100% of Syria's chemical weapons capability because it continues to use weapons, chemical weapons, against its own people to this day. Uh, But uh, uh, removing more than 1,000 tons of such weapons, we think, was a significant achievement. Tom Countryman is the former Assistant Secretary for International Security and Nonproliferation, and he left the State Department as Acting Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security. He will speak tonight at a forum hosted by the Peace Economy Project. It starts at 7 at the Unitarian Church on Waterman. Tom Countryman, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Rachel. Pleasure to be in St. Louis again. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.